0: Charting the course for Canada's Navy as it struggles to meet threats on the high seas and here at home. I'm Mercedes Stevenson. The West Bloc begins now. As confrontation with China and Russia's interests in the Arctic escalate, the Canadian Navy is faced with severe personnel shortages and aging ships.
1: The RCN faces some very serious challenges right now that could mean we fail to meet our force posture and readiness commitments in 2024 and beyond.
0: A feature conversation with the commander of the Navy, about Canada's ability to defend itself and engage abroad, plus his plan to turn things around. And on this New Year's Eve, we're counting down the top political stories of 2023 with our annual correspondence panel.
2: They were late on Poliev. they thought he would define oh, himself, yeah. he'd right. fall on his own face, that did not happen. He's now at least 10 plus points ahead in the polls.
0: As we look back on the year in politics, one of the recurring themes on our show has been the state of the Canadian military and the urgent call for more spending as well as an updated defense strategy that can meet the demands of a vastly changing world. That message hit home earlier this month when the commander of the Royal Canadian Navy released a video highlighting the challenges the Navy is facing. It was unusually candid, to say the least. So I sat down with Vice Admiral Angus Topshy before the holidays to talk about the video and what he's doing to change the Navy's course. Vice Admiral Topshy, thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to have you here. It's my pleasure. So... I watched the video that you put online, and this this video went viral, (laughs) whether you intended it to or not, talking about some of the realities that the Royal Canadian Navy is facing. And I was struck by one of the quotes in it, where you said that the very serious challenges right now could mean we fail to meet our force posture and readiness commitments in 2024 and beyond. What does that mean? What is it that the Navy may be unable to do because you don't have the people or the equipment to fulfill those tasks?
1: So to be clear, right now it's our plan to meet all of our commitments, right? So we're planning to that effect, but the challenge is if a couple of things break wrong, then there might be something that comes up that would prevent us from deploying the three ships to Indo-Pacific that we've committed to government that we'll do, deploying a frigate to Op Reassurance, sending our maritime coastal defence vessels across to to NATO as well. So there's there's a number of different commitments we have to protect Canada and Canada's maritime interests. Um, I'm confident that we will continue to execute all of those requirements but there is a chance if things don't go well that we won't be able to meet those.
0: At what cost are we able to continue to do this? Because it kind of sounds like you're getting by by the skin of your teeth. Uh, I hear from a lot of the folks in the Navy they're deploying and redeploying especially the people who are in the engineering trades who keep the ships running they're called Martex. I believe you said you're losing one every two days previously. That naturally exhausts people so even if you're able to fill those gaps right now that aren't exposing or jeopardizing our national security, can you continue to operate at this pace with this number of people?
1: So we will find a way, is the short answer. So the biggest challenge we face right now is personnel. Uh, so we're about 20% short overall in the Navy. But as you highlighted, some of the areas were particularly short, so mar- maritime technicians are people that we require to be able to sell the ships. They're the ones that operate the plant, that make the engines run, make the, the ship have power and heat and everything else that needs to be able to operate at sea. There are some certifications that we have to have to be able to put a ship to sea. And those are right now in short supply. So we have just enough to get by. and We're growing them as quickly as we can. But even if I recruited everyone, every person in Canada who was willing to join the Navy, it would take us five to ten years to train them all to the level that we require.
0: So if I, if I wave a magic wand and say you can have 1,000 people a day, Admiral, to fill the ranks, you wouldn't even be able to process that because you're so limited on personnel that the personnel don't exist to train the incoming personnel at the level you need and then you have all these years of experience needed on top of it. That sounds like a pretty compounded problem.
1: It is, which is one of the reasons that we put the video out. The video uh, internally was meant to be a call to action to really make it clear that we need to take a look at all of our human resources issues, how we manage our establishment, how we divide up our occupations and all the functions on the ship. We're going to spend the next two years really looking at how do we do this better so that if we do get those thousand people just coming in the door one day that we can quickly get them to the level that they require so that they're valued members of the ship's company and that they're filling those critical engineering watchkeeping uh, slots.
0: How do you convince people to join an organization that's struggling like this?
1: I really think that the problem is that we don't get the message out. I think the Navy is a wonderful life. I've had the opportunity to sail in every ocean and sea in the world. I've been to every continent except Antarctica. The experiences I've had at sea are fantastic and they're reflective of a great career at sea. It's a real opportunity to live an adventure and serve your country with a sense of purpose. So part of our challenge, I think, is not enough Canadians know about the great opportunities that exist within the Navy.
0: What message will it send to people who are in the Navy and those thinking about joining the Navy if the government continues to cut defense they've already announced over a billion dollars in cuts does that affect your ability to recruit and and to operate
1: there's all sorts of things that go into our ability to recruit and operate and and so any level of defense funding is an interesting challenge it's all about how you message it we're in the midst of the largest peacetime recapitalization of the royal canadian navy 2024 is going to be an incredible year from a shipbuilding point of view we're going to enter into implementation so the contract to build the first three canadian surface combatants that's the ship of the future for the navy we were going to take delivery of the fifth of six Arctic and offshore patrol ships. We're going to launch the the sixth one. We're going to launch the first of the two joint support ships uh, on the west coast. So in terms of the delivery of the future fleet, a lot is happening next year. The challenge is it takes time to get all of those ships into service, um, and we need the sailors to operate them. So, there's you, a lot of you posi- don't
0: have the sailors to operate them right now. My understanding is you can operate, what was it, one of the four of the Arctic patrol ships?
1: That's right. So there's a specific qualification that's required, an engineering watchkeeper And so there was a period of time in the fall where we were down to counting exactly how many we had to be able to put ships to sea. And so in order to generate the numbers we needed, we were very carefully managing it so that we accomplished all of the jobs the ships had to do. So every ship needs sea days to train the rest of the crew to do its trials and qualifications and different things. And so what we did is we managed that engineering watchkeeping resource across the Navy. And it did mean that for a while, we were only able to sell one at a time. We've produced a number of new people with that qualification. So now that restriction is not as severe as it was before.
0: And I I appreciate your can-do attitude. And it's so typical of the Canadian Armed Forces that um, you find a way. But you find a way to cost always. There's always a cost. And I know you have to contingency plan that, as you're saying in your video, if everything doesn't go according to plan, what happens? If we are challenged by China, which is, as you would know better than perhaps anyone with the number of challenges that have happened with ships in the Pacific, if we're challenged by a China or a Russia in the Arctic, do we have the capacity to respond beyond what we do what's necessary to get there?
1: We do have the capacity to respond. I'm actually most comfortable in the Arctic because we've now got four Arctic and offshore patrol ships. So for the first, but time, they're
0: not patrolling up there.
1: They are patrolling up there.
0: Yeah, so one of we,
1: them. Well, so we can send. We'll send two up next year. So in fact, it's a big year for those as well because Max Bernays, which is the third of those, is going to move around to the West Coast. And so for the first time, the West Coast fleet will see uh, the product of the national shipbuilding strategy. We've deployed two a year up there before. We only sent one up this year because of some constraints around our personnel. But next year we'll have two up in the north. And if we can, not if we need to, we can surge. So it's all about trying to manage our resources the, the best way we can for the long term. But if there's a short-term requirement, if we need to respond immediately to something that Russia's doing, we can do that. If we need to respond immediately to something China's doing, we can do that. There will be a price paid down the road for that, but we've got time to try and figure out.
0: How difficult is it to keep our frigates at sea right now? I know you've said that they are beyond their lifespan. And and as anyone knows who has an older car, uh, (laughs) which a lot of folks do right now because the new cars are so expensive, but it gets harder and harder to keep fixing it. How is that going
1: it's a, t- it's a challenge, right? So we're at the point now where every part that was designed to be replaced on those ships has been replaced at least once, and we're replacing the parts that were never designed to be replaced. And so something like the rudder post, the thing that holds the giant thing that decides where the ship goes, that was a part that was designed to last the life of the ship. They're now stressing and cracking, and so we monitor those very carefully, um, and we're replacing them. But that's a part that has to be forged, Uh, and designed effectively, and so it's a massive part. We do that in part of our docking work periods, and we're proud of the fact that we've got three great partners in industry, so Irving in Halifax, Davie in Quebec City, and uh, C-SPAN Shipyard in Victoria that are working hard to maintain our ships, and we're seeing those three shipyards exchange the knowledge back and forth as we work through these problems. It's not easy. As you say, anyone with an old car knows the challenge of, okay, this part's broken. They don't make that part anymore. How am I going to manage that? We've gotten really innovative with some of the... um, additive manufacturing, so we can now manufacture our own parts on both coasts. We've got some incredibly talented technicians um, and people who are mechanically inclined and love to solve problems and have a bit of a MacGyver in them, the Navy is a great opportunity for them to show those skills because we, our sailors can keep ships going. I commanded an air defense destroyer uh, back in 2009-2010. It was a ship that was built before most of us were born, and yet I was amazed at how well the technicians could keep that ship going, how it continued to perform right up until it was decommissioned about uh, eight years ago.
0: How many operational frigates do we have right now?
1: So we have 12 frigates total in the fleet. And we have three that are in deep maintenance at any one time and three more that are going in and out of that. So our fleet that's operational is six, which is actually on par with most other navies. We deploy four a year on a base of 12 which outperforms most other navies so from an operational demand point of view we've got what we need to meet our current commitments. The challenge is we really have to make sure we we put all the maintenance in when they're in those maintenance periods.
0: We just have a few moments left, but I do want to touch on something which is last, but it's not Mm -hmm. least, and that's culture change in the Navy. It's something you've said that you are committed to. I've spoken to a number of senior female naval officers who say they still find the culture on ships difficult, that things have not cut off, that they don't feel um, that in cases they're being treated equally, unless they are very clear about the issues, and, and even then, they're not happy always with the way that it's solved. Do you think that the Navy has fallen behind the other services in terms of culture change and addressing sexual misconduct?
1: No, I don't think we're behind the other services. In fact, I think you can point to a record of a number of women uh, in command positions, both as commanding officers and as in the coxswain or the senior enlisted person of a ship. I think we still have a lot of work to do on culture. I think the most recent stat scan survey tells us that this is still an issue and something that we need to be absolutely committed to. My concern is there's nothing we can do to stop all bad behavior. How we react to it is what's really important, and that's where we need to make sure we continue to do our best. When someone has something go wrong, we need to hear them. We need to make sure they preserve their agency and that we respond appropriately to that. Holding people accountable where necessary, and so the Navy has absolutely done that and continues to do that.
0: Admiral Topshi, thank you for joining us and giving your perspective uh, from the helm, as it were, I guess, of the Navy. Really interesting conversation. Thank you very much. It is hard to believe 2023 is already coming to an end, but that will happen tonight, another year over, which means it's time for our annual tradition here on the West Block. A look at the top stories of the year that was and the year to come with our global national correspondents, Abigail Beeman, Mackenzie Gray, and our chief political correspondent, David Aiken. It is always tough to pick these stories, and I look forward to hearing all, all year, all month, especially when we're preparing for this, what you're going to choose, because... It's been a year of such diversity, everything from the wildfires to vastly changing political fortunes, a war in the Middle East, national security issues, uh, provincial politics really jamming the federal liberals. Abigail, you were off for maternity leave for a lot of this year, which I think actually puts you in the best position to choose a story, because you know what real people are thinking. We talk to these guys all the time uh, on the Hill, but you really had your finger on the pulse. What do you think the top story of 2023 was?
3: I would definitely say affordability, cost of living. Uh, And you're right, I had a different perspective, uh, absorbing news more as a viewer, uh, less behind the scenes. And uh, talking to more Canadians, you know, in the middle of a weekday at the grocery store down the street, uh, certainly different than than being up here on the Hill uh, 24-7. And so affordability, that's everything from uh, the cost of food, the cost of housing, interest rates, what kinds of decisions are we making uh, with the very little or no money left over at the end of the month. That's certainly what occupies people's hearts and minds and and wallets. And it's also what the Conservatives have been able to focus on and drive as their number one issue, uh, not getting distracted or or tied up with other things. And uh, from the Canadians that I spoke to, you know, that's working. The Liberals still have a challenge.
4: Every single poll I thought through the year, when it said, which party do you think is best on affordability, Pierre Polyev and the Conservatives. That is absolutely how they grew. It was a tie game pretty much at the beginning of the year. You look at it over the year, and we finish with 10 points plus lead for the Conservatives, and you hit it. Affordability is, is the uh, the horse they're riding right now.
0: So my question there, Mac, is is... Why is it that this has been so bad for the federal liberals, which in many ways, economists will say, have made decisions about spending and other things that could have contributed to inflation. But at the end of the day, they they don't actually regulate how much groceries are or the cost of housing. That's a a municipal and a provincial issue. But somehow the Conservatives have really made this stick. And, and, And not just the Conservatives. Canadians felt this way even before Polyev started pushing it. Why is
2: it so problematic for them? Well, I think a large part of it is they couldn't communicate what they wanted to do and what the rationale was it for most of the year. They had a cabinet shuffle in the summer and things mm-hmm. changed. Ahmed Hussein was the housing minister before. He was a basically no-name guy on the hill. You couldn't, t- I couldn't name you anything he did as housing minister. They brought Sean Frazier in now, who's viewed as a high performer before. He's a star. And he has been someone who's been able to deliver programs for the Liberals. Look, going back to Abigail's point, interest rates are almost certainly going to get cut. You talk to most major economists, they're expecting multiple cuts later in the year. But there's going to be problems for 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 the liberals in terms of the number of houses they build. They're trying to deal with that with programs that they're bringing in. But any expert you talk to said it's gonna take at least two years for those programs to be felt and that will be after the next election. They're going to have a tough time fighting the next election on housing, which is what Pierre Polyev wants. It'll be an abstract for the Liberals. Programs that we're going to bring in, but not going to be able to show new houses or apartments for people that people need to live in right now.
3: Yesterday.
0: And it really feels like on this story, the Liberals have chosen to insert themselves. They're doing the full-court press conferences that remind me of COVID. Remember when they'd have them every day Mm -hmm. and there'd be a whole group of ministers? They think that that is going to work. Abigail, do you think that that helps them because they look like they're trying to do something? Or does it hurt them that they continue to insert themselves into a narrative where they, they might otherwise be able to say, look, hey, this is not actually our responsibility. You know, it's a mix. I think I think
3: you see some of both because people do want to see that those in charge are taking action or doing something. But, Mac, to your point, this is not a problem that can be solved immediately. This is going to take a lot of time. And so eventually people get frustrated by politicians making what they hear as similar promises over and over again or saying that this will be fixed, but, you know, that, that doesn't help their, their mortgage renewal or that doesn't help the, the lack of Income that they have every month, so it's a tough one. And I
4: think keep an eye on Sean Fraser, the MP for Central Nova, now the housing minister. Um, I grew up a, have a lot of friends in Guelph, Ontario. Guelph, Ontario's mayor is Cam Guthrie. Cam Guthrie went on the record. He's independent, he's not aligned with the party, saying, this guy, Fraser, is the most effective minister on this file. Stuff was happening. Fraser is trying to move a department at light speed, and if Fraser and the Liberals get press from the likes of Cam Guthrie, other small city mayors around the country, that could help stem the tide for the Liberals. But it Fraser's someone to watch I think in 2024 mm-hmm. for sure.
2: But house prices and rents and other issues around the economy did not start in August when the Liberals have taken this seriously. They might be a day late in a dollar yeah, show good yeah. issue.
0: Mac, as you take a look at the year that was and the year that's going to come, where do you think the focus is going to be? In well obviously politics? there's
2: been a big conversation about foreign interference so far this year. I got to experience that <laughs> firsthand. I was out on HMCS Montreal, a warship. I met them in Singapore and sailed with them through the Taiwan Strait and we really saw how aggressive China can be when Canadians and Americans come in their backyard. We were with an American ship. It got cut off very closely by a Chinese ship. Big news made there. But that was not the first time we've seen China do that with Canadian and other Western uh, ships in a military sense, too. So that was a big thing that the Liberals had to focus on here for the earlier part of the year, talking about China, dealing with that issue. And that meant they couldn't talk about the right. economy. They couldn't talk about things that they wanted to, which really limited them. But that's certainly something that with the uh, public interference and inquiry that will be coming later. That's something that people are going to be looking forward to. Uh, You
4: remember when when Mac was frantically trying to get a radio signal off to Montreal, (laughs) it was all very secure because he just made such a headline, a headline that our crews caught that went around the world. But let's not forget about India as the other half of the foreign interference issue. The Prime Minister, remarkably, stands in the House of Commons and says the Indian government was somehow involved in the actual assassination of a Canadian in Surrey. Uh, Somebody died on that particular foreign interference accusation. And then at the end of the year, you know, India started yelling and screaming at Canada. They didn't like this at all. But at the end of the year, uh, the United States government said, I'm sorry, but someone with the Indian government was involved in a plot to try to kill the American Canadian citizen in New York City. India is very much front and center on foreign interference as much as China is, albeit for different reasons.
0: And Iran certainly is is one of those too. And, and this is one of these yeah. sort of existential questions this government is facing, the ability to be on the international stage and to handle themselves. There's a U.S. presidential election coming up they're going to have to worry about uh, and how they're going to handle that, which is a whole other story, but but that really, along with national defense, the military struggling to have enough equipment, uh, money going to Ukraine and coming under increasing scrutiny there, as well as splits within their own caucus about their policy in the Middle East, their vote over a ceasefire, the use of that word. Uh, You've really seen this become a domestic political issue. Justin Trudeau, Struggling to figure out, Mac, I think, where he sits on, on all of this. And what his future looks like. What do you see for him?
2: Well, I mean, his future, he will tell everyone and their mother that he is going to run in the next election. He does not like Pierre Polyev. Pierre Polyev does not like Justin Trudeau. It kind of reminds me of the 2015 election. Stephen Harper did not like Justin Trudeau, and he wanted to beat him. How did that work out for Stephen Harper? That might be a lesson for Mr. Trudeau to consider and how it goes forward here. But you mentioned Donald Trump, Mercedes, and I think, you know what? Justin Trudeau wouldn't be too upset if Donald Trump became the president of the U.S. <laughs> it was they to, him last time. to draw parallels well, between Mr. Polyev and Mr. Trump, and they been able to do that certainly in the last few weeks when it comes to Ukraine. And
4: for inside baseball types like us, that is also one of the significant stories I think of the year. For the first time since Justin Trudeau became leader of the Liberal Party in 2013, the Liberal Party ran paid negative attack ads against Polyev. And part of that is comparing him to Trump. That's a sign clearly that Polyev has got something and the Liberals are worried about it. And, um, Negative attack ads work. they got to bring Polyev back even as they try to
2: boost their own For
3: a party that talked a lot about taking the high road and and not pulling that lever and trying that
2: out. But just like on housing and the economy, they were late on Polyev. They thought he would define himself. He'd fall on his own face. That did not happen. He's now at least 10-plus points ahead in the polls. The Liberals once again playing catch-up on that front.
0: Abigail, there's no question Pierre Polyev has not only picked up in the polls but on social media, that notorious episode of him biting the apple and talking to the reporter, the way he takes the media on. It either plays very well or very poorly. depending on who you talk to. The Tories obviously think it's working for them. But there's still potentially over a year until the election. I mean, there's no real sign that the NDP would want one before now, regardless of how well Mr. Polyev does. But I know there are some conservatives who are worried he may peak too soon. Do you think that that's a risk? A day in politics
3: can be a long time, much less a year, and there's still a long runway to go. But I think uh, what's important for him is that those around him are very aware of that risk and have their finger on trying to keep him uh, in the spotlight and as popular as he can be. And I really think we saw that, especially over the summer with that uh, actual physical makeover that we saw from him with a different look, a different style, even a different tone from the you know attack dog question period, uh, Mr. Polyev, that we've seen. Seen and known for so long. You look to that 15 minute uh, so called housing documentary that he points to at at every opportunity, and you listen to the voice track on there. That's a totally different style uh, and one that seems to be connecting with people. So his advisors seem to have their finger on the pulse of that. The challenge is to to
0: keep that going as long as they need to. And for anyone wondering, yes, we. Have been asking for an interview with Mr. Paul been, including a year end one. <laughs> Maybe twenty twenty four will be our yeah. last last word to you, David. Well, just
4: quick on federal politics, big news. Wab Canoe, the first First Nations person, becomes a premier of Manitoba. Look ahead for elections next year. BC, Saskatchewan, and New Brunswick, we're the most unpopular politician in the country. That's Justin Trudeau. He'll be on the ballot, put there by conservative parties trying to beat their progressive opponent.
0: Well, that's all the time we have. Thank you to the three of you for joining us, and we will be keeping an eye on all those big stories in the year to come. Now for our final one last thing of 2023. As we celebrate the close of this year and the beginning of the next one, there's one story that stands out to me more than any other, and that's the shift that we've seen in federal politics. 2023 will be the year that Justin Trudeau's Teflon coating wore off, and Canadians started taking a hard look at Pierre Polyev. Justin Trudeau is in many ways the Liberal Party's biggest liability, but he is also still their biggest asset. There's no clear way forward for a Liberal win without him as Prime Minister as it stands now. And yet the Liberals find themselves at risk of overstaying their welcome with Canadians. As the Prime Minister struggles in finding a rebrand, Pierre Polyev will be right there. But he'll have to start staking out serious policy positions, plans beyond just attacking the government on the carbon tax and foreign interference. How would a Polyev government deal with China or reconciliation? How would Mr. Polyev keep Alberta happy and deal with climate change? Viral videos and clips get attention, but voters will want to know more, not only about who Pierre Polyev is, but what his policies are if they're considering a change in government. That's our show for today and the last one for the year. A big thank you to everyone behind the scenes who works so hard on the West Block every week. And we'll see you in the new year.